Hey everybody, good afternoon. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. Today, a conversation about classified documents and how they keep turning up in places that they don't belong. The latest revelation in this regard came yesterday when it was revealed that lawyers for Mike Pence discovered what they described as a small number of documents in Pence's Indiana home. Last Friday, the FBI conducted a 13-hour search of President Joe Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and found an unknown quantity of documents. These are in addition to the material discovered earlier in his garage and in a room adjacent to the garage at the home and at an office he used in Washington after his tenure as vice president. How does this keep happening? A little later in the show, I'll speak to an expert who studies what material is designated classified, who makes those designations, and what it means for national security. But we begin with the latest on the investigations with Tyler Pager, a White House reporter for The Washington Post. He joins us on our digital line from Washington in the newsroom of The Post. Hey, Tyler, how you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for being had, as we say. Um, let's start with the most recent revelations, those of uh, the documents at Mike Pence's home in Carmel, Indiana. Uh, who found it? What did they find? Uh, and what do we know about them? Yeah, so we don't know a whole lot of detail about um, what are, are in the documents, and that's consistent across the cases um, that we'll get to. But we know that uh, one of a longtime aide to Mike Pence found the documents, um, what they are describing as a small um, number uh, of, of documents. Um, and I think what the takeaway here is um, for a lot of people looking at these cases is that there's clearly some flaws in the system when it comes to the storage and retrieval of classified documents. Obviously, uh, the most senior levels of the American government are looking at classified material all the time, but people continue to ask why are they going home or why are they not being retrieved by national security officials to ensure that they're kept in safe places. Yeah, I mean, Senator Warren, who is the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said, look, I've never looked at a classified document in a place other than a skiff, which is a, a you know secure room. In other words, he doesn't stuff them in his briefcase uh, and take them home or, you know, read them on the on the the Mark train, you know. Um, why is it that, uh, does, does anybody have any theory as to why it is that, you know, these papers are, are uh, appearing uh, in the homes of these former uh, high-level officials. Yeah, well, I think it's important to separate out the the cases. It uh, we don't have all the facts of of the cases when we're looking at Trump, Biden, and Pence. Um, but it seems that Biden and Pence's cases may be more similar than Trump's case. In Biden and Pence cases, in those two. Both um, their attorneys found these documents in their um, office or home and reported them to the National Archives, whereas with the Trump case, obviously, the National Archives went after and and, and asked for the documents back, didn't get them, and then we saw the FBI get that search warrant to go into the property and, and find them themselves. Um, but, you know, in talking with people that are familiar with how presidents and vice presidents look at classified material, they say that it's not out of the norm that they would get classified documents 
uh, in briefing books or ahead of a foreign trip or during a foreign trip. And sometimes those papers might end up in a briefing book. And then if that briefing book ends up in a box and no one looks through each of the pages of the briefing book, it may be stuck in there accidentally. Um, but given the, the nature of the travel um, that presidents and vice presidents do, it is quite different from a U.S. senator or a member of Congress who would only maybe, you know, as, as Senator Warner say, look at one of these documents in a skiff. There, uh, the presidents and vice presidents are on the road a lot more, meeting with heads of state, and their briefings uh, may not be as scheduled out as, as for example, a member of Congress's would. Now, uh, in the case of uh, former Vice President Pence, this was a staff member of his who discovered them. His lawyers got involved. Uh, they made this discovery on the 19th of January. They turned over the documents four days later to the National Archives. Um, is there a chance, uh, or is there... Uh, there, there does now seem to be some precedent for sending in federal officials from the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, to go and search Mr. Pence's home in the way they searched uh, President Biden's home uh, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, so I think it's too early to know what the next steps are in this investigation. Uh, if you look at the timeline of the Biden case, Biden's lawyer found the documents initially at the Penn Biden Center, an office he had in Washington. And then it wasn't, that was in early November. And then it wasn't until, you know, just last week in, in mid to late January that the uh, Justice Department did a full 13 hour search of his home. Um, that was a search coordinated by the president's personal lawyers where they gave the, the DOJ access to his home. Um, you know, it, Pence's, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a spokesperson for Pence says that he, you know, is willing to cooperate with the National Archives and, and any other inquiry. I think, you know, it's it's too early to say whether or not that means they will do a similar search of his home in, at, at this point. Yeah. In the case of President Biden uh, and the 13 hour search that they conducted, the president and his wife were not home at the time. This happened last Friday. Uh, how far back? Do these documents go? I, I, I understand that they predate even his time as vice president. That's correct. So the documents initially found all related to his all related to his time when he was serving as vice president. But some of the documents and we don't know exactly how many and what year that were found in this latest search uh, in the extensive probe of, of his Wilmington residence relate to his time as a U.S. Senator. Obviously, he served for almost 40 years in the United States Senate, was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and so there are documents that relate to that tenure of, of his public life. Have we heard anything from the two people appointed as special counsel in these cases? John Lausch, who's the U.S. attorney in Chicago, is looking into the Trump papers, and Bob Herr, who people here in Maryland know as the former U.S. attorney in Baltimore, Robert Herr. Uh, he's looking into the Biden papers. Um, uh, folks in, in those positions are, uh, you know, famously tight-lipped about what they're doing. But what can you tell us about these two attorneys? And uh, what can you tell us about uh, speculation uh, as to the timeline for the work that they're doing and when it might be completed? Yeah, and just one quick clarification. Lausch was the attorney initially looking into the Biden case, and now her is the special counsel for the Biden case. Jack Smith, who uh, came back from Europe uh, posting there, he is oh, the special that's, counsel. That's right, of course, at the, of, at course, the Trump case. of course. There's a lot right. of names here and a lot of different attorneys yeah. doing, doing different <laughs> things. 
But but to your point there, there there is not a lot that we expect from the special counsels. They are doing their work independently of the Justice Department and of each other. Um, and actually her, you know, he as of last week, he had not started. He was at a private law firm and then coming back into government to take on this job. Um, so he had not officially started as special counsel yet. Um, he's supposed to in, in the coming days and weeks. And, and so, you know, he is just getting caught up to speed on, on the investigation, on the next steps. And so I don't think we expect to hear much more. You know, the where we're getting most of the information from at this point is from the White House and the president's personal attorney. They're the ones who put out statements on Saturday, alerting the public to the fact that a 13-hour search had been conducted of the president's Wilmington residence and that more classified material has been found. So if they were to do additional searches and find additional documents, our expectation would be that we would hear from the White House on that. And uh, President Biden and former Vice President Pence have uh, said that these are inadvertent mistakes, that, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, confusion going on uh, as administrations change uh, or, you know, people vacate offices, etc. Um, so they're making the inadvertent mistake argument, and it seems that most people, a lot of people, are buying that argument. What is the argument that Donald Trump is making about the reasons that uh, the documents appeared uh, in such great quantity uh, at Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, you know, there are some people that, that are saying it, you know, appears to be an inadvertent mistake. That's what both Biden and Pence are saying, as you said. Others, not so much. You know, the House Republicans have already launched inquiries and investigations into Biden's handling of classified documents and and trying to figure out why they ended up there. On Trump, obviously, the case is quite different. Um, There's a whole lot of um, different reasoning we've heard from the former president about, you know, that he had the power to declassify some of these documents. Um, But, you know, I think what ultimately that case is going to hinge on, as we see, is whether or not there was obstruction in that case um, in in terms of purposely bringing those documents down to Mar-a-Lago and then not giving them back when they were requested and, you know, giving false statements about where they were and who had possession of them as the Department of Justice and the National Archives were trying to get them back. And uh, in terms of the Biden response and how it differs from the Trump response, um, in your reporting, uh, you found a a letter from the DOJ to one of the attorneys for Mr. Biden uh, that talked about, uh, you know, a strategy of how to approach this issue. What, What did that letter say? It was previously unreported before you all talked about it in the Post. Yeah, so this was a, a, a piece of information that was not previously known to the public about uh, communication between the Department of Justice and President Biden's personal attorneys about how they should handle um, further inquiries into potential documents. Um, in the letter, the Department of Justice asked them um, to not review more documents, not search other locations. Um, and this part of the importance of this letter is there was a lot of criticism uh, from from Democrats and Republicans about why the White House, why President Biden had not done additional searches of his properties to find or look for other documents Um and why it took so long for those searches to eventually happen. And so what this letter illuminates is that there was instructions from the Department of Justice um, in which the justice official specifically asked um, the Biden legal team to refrain from further reviewing um, other relevant documents that might be stored at, at different locations. And so that, you know, is sort of an important uh, point as we think about the timeline of this investigation. 
But at this point, with these three cases, Trump, Pence, and Biden, uh, it seems that Mr. Trump is the only one who appears to be in imminent legal jeopardy. Uh, Do I have that right? Or is there still a chance for legal jeopardy uh, with uh, Mr. Pence and Mr. Biden? I think with any special counsel investigation, there's always uh, a chance of, of, of legal jeopardy. I think there are, are, it is too early to tell in the Pence and Biden cases whether, um, prosecutors or, uh, the, uh, the Department of Justice rather, um, thinks that there's criminal activity, um, there. But, but I think the cases are at very different points. A couple of other things, real quick, before we let you go that you've been reporting on. Uh, there's not been an official announcement, but it seems that, uh, the Biden administration giving a very close look to Lyle Brainerd as the, who's currently a vice chair of the Fed, uh, to head the Council of Economic Advisors, or be, uh, what, what exactly would, would her position be if, in fact, uh, the president chooses her? And uh, how do you think that's going to be received in the Senate? Yeah, so the director of the National Economic Council is Brian Deese, and he has you know, telegraph that he's leaving the White House. Um, his exact date is, is unclear. This is a, the top uh, economic official in the White House. It's not Senate confirmed. Um, and so they are uh, actively uh, looking for Brian Deese's report. Oh, who, as you noted, is the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, is uh, a top contender for that job. Um, this is a, a, a position with a lot of power in the White House, sort of coordinating the entire economic response across the Biden administration and the government. And as we know, there are um, big economic decisions coming down the pike uh, in Congress, particularly as we look toward the debt limit as one example. Brainerd is someone that um, Biden considered uh, to nominate as the Federal Reserve chairperson. He ultimately stuck with Jerome Powell, but she is someone uh, that would be welcomed by liberals and and someone that has really been an uh, outspoken advocate for stricter regulation on Wall Street and also looking at the effects of climate change on financial markets and and economies around the world. Um, Someone that has served in previous Democratic administrations, worked on the National Economic Council and the Clinton administration and then the Treasury Department at... um, uh, the Treasury Department in the Obama administration. And tell us briefly about Jeff Zients. He's going to be uh, Joe Biden's next chief of staff. Uh, we've got uh, the resignation uh, coming up fairly soon of uh, Ron Klain from the very demanding job of being the White House chief of staff. Um, what do you think attracted the president to uh, Jeff Zients? Yeah, so Jeff Zients um, is someone that the president you know, has worked with before. He ran the administration's COVID response from the start through the uh, middle of last year. Um, he's someone that brings a management consultant background and uh, economic private sector and public sector economic experience to the job. And I think one of the things that's important to note is as the president prepares to launch a re-election bid, the chief of staff job is, is likely going to change and be a little bit more divided as some of the people in the White House will be more political focused. For example, Anita Dunn, a senior advisor, and General Melly Dillon, a deputy chief of staff, whereas Jeff Science will be more focused on just trying to keep the federal government, the agencies, and the policy running. Um, so a little bit more of a bifurcated model, some compare it to what the Obama White House did in 2011-2012, when Jack Lew was chief of staff and David Plouffe managed the, the political operations from inside the White House. Um, but I think that is sort of the model that they are planning to have as Jeff Science takes over for Ron Klain. Tyler Pager is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks, Tyler. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Up next, a scholar from Columbia University who studies how documents become classified and how they are supposed to be handled when they are distributed to officials. Matthew Conley joins me after a break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR, where you're listening to Midday. Good afternoon and welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow on our show, embattled Baltimore County Schools Superintendent Daryl Williams has announced that he will not seek to renew his contract when it expires in June. WYPR's John Lee will fill us in on why so many groups called for him to resign. Plus, Davon Love is the political director of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. He'll join us to discuss the LBS agenda for the 2023 General Assembly. And Jay Wynn Russick will review the new show at the Spotlighters Theater. So that's coming up tomorrow. And now I am joined by Matthew Connolly, a professor at Columbia University and the author of the forthcoming book, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. Matthew Connolly joins me on Zoom from New York. Matt, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Tom. So how common is it for folks to find classified papers mixed in with personal effects and personal papers of these high-ranking officials? Well, the, the short answer is that there's no way of knowing because this is not the kind of thing the government um, produces statistics on. Uh, I can tell you that there have been some pretty famous cases. Uh, I'm surprised myself why you know, we haven't been talking about them more. You know, I think of Henry Kissinger, for instance, and all the transcripts of his telephone conversations. And then, of course, there's you know, Richard Nixon and the way he wanted to treat his presidential records as private property. So there's there are precedents for this, but you know the short answer again is is we just don't know. Who's in charge of the custody of these documents? For example, if for the president's daily briefing that folks from the CIA give him, uh, if uh, in a briefing book there is a classified document that someone from the CIA includes in that briefing, um, is that agent? Is that person or? that person's office in charge of retrieving it and getting it back from the president? I mean, how, how does it work? What's the chain of custody uh, supposed to be? Well, it's hard to know with certainty about currently classified information. But what I can tell you, you know, from looking at many, many thousands of, of declassified documents is that there are often, you know, very elaborate protocols, you know, for numbering uh, sensitive documents and identifying, you know, the distribution list, you know, to see who had uh, copies of these. And of course, you know, in many cases, you know, people are, are given, you know, sensitive records and then they're required, you know, to, uh, to return them, you know, to sign off on the receipts, sign off on the return. But of course, what we're talking about now is a vast system, you know, that the last time, you know, anyone was able to even estimate how many times government officials were creating official secrets, it numbered, you know, in the tens of millions uh, at the peak, it was more than three times every second 
before the government more or less gave up even trying to quantify how many times people are creating official secrets. So of course, it, we shouldn't be surprised you know, that you know, large numbers of these records eventually go missing. I'm I'm interested that the the National Archives, which is you know supposed to get all of the presidential records when they leave office, uh, contacted uh, the Trump team and said there appear to be some documents that are missing, uh, and we would like them back. And that, of course, set a, a string of uh, events uh, in motion. How did they know that they were missing documents? How how did they make that determination uh, in the first place? I think a lot of us would like to know. I mean, I can infer, uh, you know, from some known facts, for example, you know, famously, one of those documents, uh, or several actually, I believe, were uh, letters, correspondence between Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. And so uh, everyone knew <laughs> that these records existed. One reason, of course, was that the former president was proud to display them and show them off even to people who had no authorization to view such records. So I think the least, you know, uh, surprising explanation would be that, you know, when people, you know, at the National Archives, interested in history, of course, you know, were looking for these records uh, and wanted to make sure that they were retained for history, they noticed they weren't there, right? So I think that's one possible reason. Another reason, though, is that the sheer volume, you know, apparently it was many boxes of, of materials uh, had been shipped down to Mar-a-Lago. It creates conspicuous gaps, right? I, I think that archivists, uh, trained as they are, you know, in understanding, you know, filing systems, you know, and how paper moves around the White House, they may have been uh, surprised, you know, to see that there there were records that just weren't there that they expected to be there. In the case, for example, of these letters from Kim in Korea, um, the president, uh, President Trump at the time, referred to them as love letters. Uh, he was very uh, happy with himself to have received them. Why, for example, would something like that be classified? I mean, if in fact the letter simply says, "Dear Donald, uh, I really enjoyed meeting you. You're a terrific fellow. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to." many more wonderful meetings. What, 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 do you, what would be the, the justification for making that a classified matter? One reason is that, uh, and this is something that's not often remarked on, is how a lot of the information the government classifies, they say anyway, they say it's because you know, they're trying to protect information uh, that was produced by a foreign power. Uh, and so, you know, there are examples of this, uh, you know, some of them kind of amazing, right? Where, you know, even records going back to say the Suez crisis in 1956, uh, the U.S. government will, in some cases, not declassify or redact, you know, because they find that, you know, the government of Britain or the government of France, you know, still doesn't want to, you know, come clean about some of the more unsavory aspects of these international episodes. So in this case, I, I think it's quite possible, you know, that they thought that this correspondence between Kim Jong-un and, and the former president was information that North Korea would not want to be disclosed publicly. And as long as the United States is still interested in trying to pursue a relationship or at least a relaxation of tensions, it may be that they're sensitive, you know, about releasing these secrets, even if they seem completely innocuous. Dr. Matthew Conley is a professor at Columbia University. He's got a book coming out next month called The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Conley, 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday. 
WIPR. So, Matt, let's talk about the National Archives. Uh, it seems that, you know, if in fact uh, we are classifying literally, you know, 49 million, uh, at one point was the number, 90 million documents, another number. I mean, as you say, it's in the tens of millions of documents. Um, it's got a, it's a huge effort to keep track of all of that stuff. Um, but the National Archives uh, seems to be, you know, really, really dangerously understaffed. What, what's going on over there? Yeah, this, I think, is something that uh, too few people uh, understand. And sadly, this includes many members of Congress. Uh, so, you know, we all expect the National Archives uh, to be the repository of our collective heritage, right? All the records you know, that we're going to want to preserve for history. Uh, you know, not just for historians like me, but of course, you know, private citizens, you know, many of them want to look up the histories of their own family, right? Like the service histories of people who served in the military, you know, journalists, of course, in many cases, like when people become newly prominent, get appointed or nominated to top positions, they want to find out, you know, the things that they might have done in government previously. Well, the National Archives is sadly, you know, underfunded and understaffed and completely overwhelmed by the challenge of dealing with electronic records. And you don't just have to take my word for it. Uh, you know, the uh, person who President Biden tried to uh, not, uh, well, did nominate, but did not in the end, at least so far, manage to, um, to put into place as the new archivist of the United States. You know, she's talked about the, the dire need, you know, to do something uh, about the, the sad state of, of affairs and how it is that for decades already, the National Archives has, has struggled, you know, to deal with the, the challenge of big data. So just to take one example, the National Archives, when adjusted for inflation, you know, has a smaller budget now than it had 20 years ago. It has fewer staff than it did then. And just think of the size of the, the problem, right? The fact that we have now, you know, many more presidential libraries than we had before, all of them part of the National Archives system. We have literally billions of electronic records that at some point are going to have to be reviewed and processed, uh, at least for some percentage of them, you know, to be preserved for history. So it's really facing an impossible problem. And unless the American people speak up and talk to their congressmen and insist, you know, that something be done to try to preserve our history, I, I think it's only going to get worse. Uh, you wrote a piece in the L.A. Times uh, in which you talked about Mark Bradley, who's a guy at the National Archives. He directs the Information Security Oversight Office. Uh, he says, you know, there's a dire need to reform the current system of classification and declassification. He says that secrecy itself is out of control. This has been the case for a while. This didn't start in the Biden or the Trump administration, did it? Not at all. No, you can go back to the Eisenhower administration. I mean, even then, uh, I'm not talking about watchdog groups. I'm talking about, in this case, like committees and commissions, you know, appointed within the Pentagon, uh, you know, people who had long careers already in national security, who said even in the 1950s that overclassification was a, a growing problem and increasingly a priority. And for their, from their point of view, you know, it wasn't just that uh, they realized that this was going to erode public trust in, in public institutions. But it was also making it harder to identify and prioritize real secrets that really could be dangerous if, if disclosed publicly or to, our, to our, uh, our enemies. So this has been a problem for a really long time. And that's why I think a lot of the you know, more feverish coverage lately is missing the, the bigger story here. 
Uh, we have a caller on the line. Don is calling from Pennsylvania. Don, welcome to Midday. Whereabouts in Pennsylvania are you? Oh, I'm right here in Erie. In Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, welcome to the show yeah. with Dr. Matthew Conley. What's your question? Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate you letting me on. I have about 10 questions, but I know I can't get to all of them. Anyway, what I want, actually, I would call the skiff, or to be called the skiff control. That's where the problem lies. I say that because, as you said earlier, uh, this problem goes back a long ways. I think everybody remembers, I think it was the Clinton administration when one of the staff people got caught with uh, documents in his pants, shirts, socks, everywhere else. But at the end of the day, even when you talk about presidential briefings, you can understand staff needing to take those documents for the president to look at to see. But at the end of the day, the person in charge of the SCIF should know what documents went out. And it begs the question, is there a time frame? Does that person now say after a few days or however long that, Mr. President, you took out X amount of documents, I'd like them returned? What kind of processes are there in place? All right, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that question, Don. So these SCIFs, the Sensitive Compartmentalized Information Facilities, who is there? Is there an agency, or is this, again, another thing that the National Archives is in charge of? Who who runs those particular places? Well, that's part of what we taxpayers get by spending $18 billion on official secrets. Uh, we, we get all these, you know, SCIFs that or all over, all over the place. You know, there's a skiff apparently in, in uh, the Congress, the Capitol building. Uh, there are skiffs, you know, all over Washington at different departments and agencies. Uh, so, you know, this is now like part of the infrastructure of government. And it's one reason why all this has become so expensive and to be honest, unmanageable. Now, uh, just think of it, like imagine what it means to try to get your work done and do it efficiently when you have to follow these elaborate protocols, even for information that is not sensitive, because you know everyone knows that a lot of this information that supposedly has to be protected in these SCIFs is information that's already in the public domain. And so it's incredibly inefficient and costly. And yeah, there are some people making money from it. But in terms of like regulations, I think it's it's useful to think about, you know, what happens, for example, when a president, as in the case of former President Trump, uh, when Trump decided that he was producing papers that he didn't want anyone to see. There are regulations, in fact, law, the Presidential Records Act, that require the White House to preserve these records, right? Because they don't belong to the president, ultimately, right? They belong to the people, the American public. And so according to the Presidential Records Act, all these records are meant to be retained, and those that are historically significant are supposed to be preserved by the National Archives. So what did Trump do? He started tearing up these papers into tiny little pieces and threw them into the waste paper basket. And what happened? Well, people in the White House realized that this was against the law. And so two people were tasked uh, with the sorry job of having to scotch tape this stuff back together. So just think of it. This is your money and mine. We're paying employees of the General Services Administration to scotch tape these papers back together. Now, the interesting to me, you know, and saddest part of the story is what happened to these people? Well, both of them were fired. Now, we still can't know for sure, you know, that it was because they were trying to preserve records belonging to the American people. But to me, it's pretty suspicious. Yeah. And, of course, who knows how many they missed, you know? I mean, that's right. You know, how many were flushed down the toilet? Were flushed right? down the toilet. We heard you yeah. know, Maggie Haberman reported about that. Um, 
who who is allowed to make classifications? Uh, president Trump has you know long stated very famously that uh, any president can declassify anything he wants, and uh, the former president seems to think he can just think the thought of declassification, and it happens. Um, there's uh, that's pretty shaky uh, legally uh, as a claim, but is part of the problem that there are so many different people in government who have the authority to classify things? Okay, so this is where we have to get a little bit, get it, get into the weeds a bit, but it's important uh, to understand. So in terms of like actually deciding, you know, this new technology or this program, this covert operation, this is something I want to classify at the top secret level. There are a limited number of people who have that power. And of course, it includes the president, the vice president, you know, cabinet ministers, and so on. Um, but it also includes a couple of thousand of other people. Uh, these are people who have so-called original classification authority. And the government keeps track of, of these people, how many there are, who they are. Many of them are political appointees. And one reason for that, and one reason why, you know, of all the things the government does try to control very closely, the reason why there are a relatively small number of people who have that kind of power is because, of course, the White House ultimately wants to control what information is designated as national security information. So they try to limit to the extent they possibly can the number of people who have this kind of original classification authority. Now, the problem though, and what makes it impossible to control is that there are many, many more people, you know, literally millions of people who have access to classified information. And in fact, you know, in terms of the top secret level, 1.3 million people have top secret security clearances. Now, not all those people are generating secrets, but they're all them, you know, producing, whether they realize it or not, they're producing secret information, right? In their texts, in their tweets, you know, in their skiffs, in their Zoom calls and all the rest of it. And all that information, if it's uh, about that same program or technology, all that is supposed to be classified at the same level. And so that's why it is that, you know, the last time anyone checked, the government was producing classified information at the rate of, of tens of millions of times every year. Mm. 1.3 million people have top secret classification clearance. That's amazing. That's as exclusive as the bus, you know? I mean, <laughs> that's just nuts. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and talk some more with Dr. Matthew Conley. He's a professor at Columbia University and the author of a book that's coming out on the 14th of February. It's called The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. You can join our conversation with Matthew Conley, 410-662-8780, our email midday at wipr.org. You can tweet us at midday WIPR or follow me at Tom Hall WIPR. Stay with us. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, we're talking about how so many classified documents are turning up in all sorts of places that they don't belong, including 
the homes of Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and Mike Pence. My guest is Matthew Conley, a professor of international and global history at Columbia University. He's also the co-director of the Institute for Social and Economic Research and Policy and principal investigator of History Lab, which applies data science to the problem of preserving the public record and accelerating its release. His new book, The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets, will be published next month. He's with us until the top of the hour. You can be with us, too. 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. If you want to tweet us, try at midday WIPR. So, Matt, let me go back to something you mentioned right before the break. It's uh, an $18 billion uh, budget, an $18 billion industry, at least this is as of 2017, which is the last time that anybody at the National Archives uh, you know, hazarded a guess. So it's probably even more. But you say that there's a lot of people who are profiting from the system. Who's profiting and how? Oh, private contractors, uh, like a lot of what the government does. Uh, you know, many of those people have those security clearances, of course, or, or people work in private industry, right? Uh, there are many, many jobs, as many of your listeners know, that you can't get without a security clearance. And all those people need to be trained, right? And uh, a lot of that training costs money. Uh, there are also, you know, more and more, there are elaborate systems, IT systems that are meant to prevent, you know, another Edward Snowden uh, or Chelsea Manning from doing what they did. Some the most dramatic, you know, increase in the rate of spending on secrecy occurred after the the Snowden revelations. And if you look at the budget, it's not really a budget, but it's just a, a kind of guesstimate. The last time the Information Security Oversight Office produced this budget, it was clear that a lot of the growth uh, came from IT systems and the kind of highly trained people you need, you know, to design and, and operate those systems. Should the Department of Justice search the homes and uh, offices of former cabinet secretaries, uh, members of Congress. I mean, having discovered all this stuff in these three locations, should there be an assumption that uh, some other agency officials and government officials have classified material uh, in their private possession as well? Well, if we're going to undertake you know, that kind of scrutiny, my hope is that we wouldn't only be looking for classified documents. And this is, I think, the story a lot of people are missing, which is that you know, we keep talking about you know, whether you know, former President Biden, or sorry, former President Trump or President Biden, whether they endangered national security. What no one seems to be talking about is how you know, ultimately what a, an elected official or an appointed official is doing you know, when they take records that are public records and they take them into their home or they put them in storage units, what they're doing is stealing our property. You know, these records belong to the American people. It's our history that they're taking. And in some cases, you know, it's, I don't know if it's the case in these instances, but for sure, there are many examples of former officials writing memoirs, right, where they then use what was supposed to be privileged information, sometimes classified information, to get big advances and sell lots of books and make lots of money. Right? And so, in effect, they're commoditizing you know, their access to official secrets, and they're doing it for private gain. It's, it's a great example, too, of the way in which the system operates for the benefit of the people at the top. And many people have gone through this miserable experience of having to get their publications cleared. And what most people find is that it, it, if you are you know, a very senior official, uh, if you're, say, the former director of the CIA, you get very different treatment 
uh, than if, say, you're a mid-level employee, and especially if you're trying to say anything critical about the CIA. So that whole vetting process is another example of how it is all of us need to be more concerned, not just about national security, but also about our history and how it is all too many people are trying to profit from it and take it for as if it were their own private property. Let's go to the phones to Ronald. He's on the line from Glen Burnie. Ronald, welcome to Midday with Dr. Matthew Conley. Good afternoon. Uh, your conversation is interesting. Uh, I only have uh, two points. Uh, one, it's obvious that the production of these uh, classified documents is too, too large. And uh, the criteria for classification should be reviewed and minimized as much as necessary and possible. But the second point I wanted to make is that in this country and in other countries, uh, we have library systems. And these library systems throughout the United States have millions, hundreds of millions, I suppose, of books. And uh, everyone is uh, uh, numbered and classified and put in a computer, and they know who took them out. They know how long they should be out. They know when they're not returned, uh, they send out uh, warnings. And uh, I suspect that you can use library technology to get this thing under control. Well, maybe, uh, maybe, Ronald. Uh, Matthew Connolly, what do you think? I mean, I don't know. Do you start fining the President of the United States 50 cents a day if uh, (laughs) he doesn't return his book on time? (laughs) Well, there are interesting parallels, you know, between, like, libraries and archives on the one hand and the kind of, like, data banks and data systems that we know, you know, operate in this dark state. And, in fact, you know, a lot of intelligence agencies, like the Office of Naval Intelligence, the oldest one we have, they started out as libraries. And some of our most famous spies, like J. Edgar Hoover, you know, started out as a librarian. So there is a, a you know, real parallels here and interesting insights to be gained from looking at how it is that we organize information, right, in, in different settings. But one of the big differences here is that, you know, the classified information that we've been talking about, it's been growing exponentially, right, as near as we can measure it. So too is every other kind of information. So in, in a way, it's not so different from, you know, what many of us are familiar with, right? The, the exponential growth in like video and audio and everything else. What's different about this and what's, what the real problem is when it comes to declassifying is that all of this has to be reviewed page by page before any of it gets released to the public, right? And that's the big difference when we try to draw parallels, you know, with what's happening in, in the wider world. And so until we come up with, with new technology, the same kind of technology you know, that Netflix and Amazon already use, right, recommendation systems, unless we can develop systems like that you know, to recommend you know, which records need to be protected most closely and which ones we can release quickly, we're, we're just not going to get ahead of this problem. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and we're nowhere close to that. Is what you're saying. Well, you know, <laughs> interestingly, the Public Interest Declassification Board, which, by the way, is having one of their meetings tomorrow. It's an open meeting, you know, that people can join virtually. You know, they've been saying for 10 years now 
that we have to begin using machine learning algorithms to get on top of this problem. And, you know, my own project, the book I, I'm coming out with next month, it's all about the research that I've been doing with statisticians and computer scientists using artificial intelligence to try to identify what are the things that the government didn't want us to know. And the idea here is, of course, you know, not just to uncover this hidden history, but also to help us understand as a society, you know, what it is the government has been trying to protect and what it is actually that all of us, I think, can agree requires protection. Well, I'm fascinated to know that J. Edgar Hoover was a librarian. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, one would assume that the consequences of having a late book to the library that J. Edgar Hoover was running, would, <laughs> you know, would be severe. That, that would, you know, you are really, you, you are risking your life uh, almost literally. Um, you have written about certain presidents, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, even Barack Obama, have tried to reform the system. What, what reforms did they try to implement and what happened to them? Well, the short version of this is that practically every president except Donald Trump has issued an executive order that is meant to regulate the system for creating national security information. And Trump was the only one. He apparently was perfectly happy with the system that Obama left in place. But one reason may be that when you really look at it, these orders are pretty much all the same. I, I know some people are going to react with, with horror when I say that, but I'm telling you, when you look at it and, and look at each element, what they call reform, like limiting the number of people who are able to create inf uh, top secrets, limiting the amount of information that's supposed to be top secret, supposedly automatically declassifying the secrets of previous administrations, all of these so-called reform measures really aim at one thing, and that is to consolidate control over official secrecy in the White House and allow the president and his top appointees to control what it is the government uh, is telling the people and what it is the public is not allowed to know. Right. So that's why I'm a little bit cynical. And that's why I insist so much that we really need Congress and the courts to start doing their job. You know, this system is not going to reform itself. Let's see if we can sneak in one more call. Just have a couple of minutes left. John in Baltimore. Welcome to Midday with Matthew Conley. Hi. Yeah. My question, I think Ron kind of pointed to it with the library system, but I don't know if there's also like a way to put like a chip on stuff that stuff that goes out. It's classified, and also, you know, are we going to dig into, like, Clinton's and Obama's now to see if they still have stuff, maybe? Yeah, I mean, can you can you mark the documents or, you know, uh, input on a document, you know, some sort of tracking device? Is that ever possible? Well, I'm sure there are people out there, Beltway Bandits, right now, who are feverishly trying to come up with new product pitches for the parts of our government that seem to have infinite resources to spend on secrecy. I mean, the only time I got a meeting with a, a senior official at IARPA, which is meant to be like the DARPA of the intelligence community, she told me that they were completely uninterested in technology for declassification. Instead, what they were interested in was technology to automatically classify records. <laughs> so Automatically, I, I it, yeah. Automatically, wow. right. Yeah, wow. so they could do it even more, right, and more quickly. <laughs> so as citizens, I think we've got to wake up. Like, why is it so many of us are trying to figure out ways to help the government keep information from us? I think more of us should be asking about why is it they're trying to keep so much information from us? And when is it we're going to be able to hold them to account? Yeah, that's the whole thing. And, and you've written about this uh, a lot. Uh, there's no democratic oversight uh, to a lot of what's going on here. Uh, and you've said that it may be necessary to have a whole new independent agency, something akin to the Federal Reserve that, you know, has uh, sole control over all of this. 
Um, so we'll, we'll see uh, what happens, and we look forward to your book when it comes out. Dr. Matthew Conley, he's a professor of international and global history at Columbia University in New York. His new book is called The Declassification Engine, What History Reveals About America's Top Secrets. It comes out on Valentine's Day. Matt, thank you so much, and uh, congratulations and good luck with the book. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tom, and thanks to your listeners. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, a reporter's notebook with WIPR's John Lee, who covers Baltimore County. We'll talk about the reasons Baltimore County School Superintendent Daryl Williams has chosen not to try to renew his contract. And Davon Love of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle outlines his organization's legislative agenda for the General Assembly session. And we will have a review with Jay Wynn Russick of the new show over at the Spotlighters Theater here in Baltimore. So that's all coming up tomorrow. Hope you can be with us for that. Coming up now, it's Here and Now. That's after news at the top of the hour, so stick around. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. This is your public radio, 881 WYPR.